Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're Mumbrella listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. The astute amongst you may have noticed that I'm not Tim Burrows. It is, in fact, editor Vivian Kelly here. Depending on when you're listening to this, Tim may be flying back from Singapore, he may be back in Sydney in the throes of Mumbrella 360 planning, or who knows, maybe it's the future and the robots have taken over and this is your last form of human contact. Oh, the wonders of podcasting. But Burroughs fans, don't panic because thanks to the magic of podcasting, you'll be hearing from Tim later as he chats over the phone with comedy legend Sean McAuliffe about why Australian TV networks are struggling to keep up with Netflix. Makes it very, very difficult to try and make anything in Australia that can stack up. Coming to terms with his new role. Quite frankly, I don't know what I'm doing or what it is or what the value of it is. Plus, that infamous 10 breakfast interview. No one looked up from their notes and I thought, oh man, I just completely misread this room entirely. But joining me this week to break down the media and marketing industry is Mumbrella's features and opinion editor, Josie Tutty, who is pushing the buttons. Hello. And our senior media reporter who has been practising her vocal exercises courtesy of a trip to The Voice, Zoe Samios. Hello. So this week we will be discussing the third radio ratings of the year are in. Ogilvy rebrands. Bauer Media is finally back on the acquisition trail. Media buyers speak out on Nielsen metrics. So Zoe, it's one of our favourite times of the year, which luckily occurs eight times a year. Radio Ratings Day was on Tuesday. Look, a lot happened and you spend so much time speaking to all the radio content bosses and and breaking down what's happening. But as Sydney-centric as we are sometimes accused of being, I do think the big story here is Today FM, which is Southern Cross Oz Stereo's station, which now has a 5.6% share of total people. That doesn't sound very high and in all honesty it's not very high but it's their highest since Kyle and Jackie O defected to Kiss at the end of 2013. Do you think Today FM has finally turned things around? I do. I think you know they've had a very strong start to this year in that they've had growth every single ratings survey that did not happen last year so I think things have sort of turned around in that respect. Obviously this survey did include weeks, and I don't have the exact dates on me, but it did include the weeks where there was quite a bit of controversy around the Today FM breakfast host, Emma Shiano. Um, For those of you who went on our podcast a couple of weeks ago, we did talk about that. Basically, there were things said on a podcast with another station's breakfast host, and that would be Southern Cross Stereo's Triple M breakfast host, Will Anderson in Melbourne. Um, he runs a podcast called Willosophy, and there was some stuff said about M, her time on the show her new hosts and her old hosts and to put it simply she was she was quite upset visibly upset but what that that hasn't really seemed to impact this these particular ratings she seems it seems if anything people have sort of wanted to listen more it's almost like controversy has gone oh everyone kind of wants to see what she's going to say next well for somebody who look doesn't get fantastic ratings she certainly does generate a lot of media coverage so perhaps people were tuning in 
to listen to see what the dynamic was because I know so much of the speculation was Ed Cavalier is not talking to M. Rusciano as a result. Grant Danya, who also hosts Family Feud on 10 uh, and soon-to-be Game of Games on 10, sort of also spoke to the media and said, oh, I'm not going to comment on that, which almost fuels the fire even yeah. more. So I'm sure people were tuning in. Look, they went up 0.5 share points, which isn't a lot. They're on point. Uh, 9% now, that particular breakfast show, but they started the year on 3.4% and with her old co-host, Harley Breen, they hit a low point of 2.8%. So 4.9% comparatively uh, would probably be quite good for SEA. It definitely is and it definitely puts them back in the game. Um, the closest people to them probably or the closest in sort of – hosts and the likes is probably Nova, which has um, Fitzy and Ripper and Kiss, which has Kyle and Jackie O. Obviously very well-known people, very strong brands in themselves. But what was interesting was actually, and I like to do this sort of every survey, is talk to these content bosses. So we obviously uh, have the chance to to look at not only the ratings, but talk about these wider issues. Um, this survey I got to speak to from ARN, which um, runs KISS and WSFM, Gold FM in Melbourne, uh, Duncan Campbell, Hit Network's head of content, Gemma Fordham, Triple M's head of content, Mike Fitzpatrick, Paul Jackson, who's the group program director at Nova. What I wanted to talk to them about this week was this controversy and this idea of controversy and how it sort of impacts ratings. Duncan had a few things to say. Duncan did have a few things to say. Um, his main point was that contractually he didn't believe and Rosciano was allowed to say some of the things she said. He said he would have gone as far as to fire her. That obviously did not sit well with Gemma Fordham, um, who is the big boss of M. Rosciano, who said that she wasn't going to enter into a schoolyard bullying match with Duncan, which is totally fair. This happens quite often on survey day. Everyone's sort of throwing things at one another. But what it did tell me was that everyone has their own way of dealing with this stuff. Mike Fitzpatrick dealt with Will Anderson completely differently. They actually addressed it on air. They were all very open about it. So it really just comes down to the per people. And I also speak to Macquarie Media's Adam Lang. Uh, he's the CEO there. He obviously, uh, their stations include 2GB, 3AW. So they obviously have shock jocks always causing controversy. And again, he has a very different way of handling it. And I think that was really interesting to see. There's a certain amount of irony here in ARN's Duncan Campbell talking about controversial talent when he is effectively in charge of uh, Kyle Sanderlands. Uh, so... It's almost a matter of maybe controversy is good and courting this kind of controversy. I don't know if M. Rusciano is courting controversy. I obviously believe that Kyle Sanderlands does. But I don't think there's any need to talk about firing people when so many radio hosts are shock jocks and do rely on getting that attention and, and drawing people in by having that intrigue of, oh, do they hate each other? Do they like each other? What will they do next? And it definitely doesn't hurt the ratings as we have discovered from this book. Definitely. And to give listeners some context, as I said, M, Grant and Ed finished up on 4.9% this survey. Rove and Sam, who are previous Today FM Breakfast hosts, went out on 3.8%. Jules Lund's program with Sophie Monk, Mel B and Merrick Watts finished with 3% and Dan and Maz always hovered around the 3% mark as well. So 4.9 is low, but uh, it's better than anything they've done in the past five years. So also in news this week, we had Ogilvy releasing its global rebrand, which has been a long time in the making 
Really notable with this one is the fact that they have ditched founder David Ogilvie's signature as their logo, which they adopted in about 1999. So they're describing this as a refounding. It certainly feels like they're trying to start again. There's all sorts of buzzwords in announcements like this, and they've talked about how they've reorganized under six units, which is advertising, customer engagement and commerce, earned influence and public relations, digital transformation and partnerships. It's certainly a bigger trend in holding companies to do this kind of thing and talk about restructures and realignments. But this one is particularly big for WPP in that they are seemingly moving away from that iconic imagery of David Ogilvy's signature and, and trying to position themselves a little bit a little bit differently and this is a definite rebrand it's not the kind of oh we've slightly tweaked the font they've gotten rid this is something that's kind of been they've been phasing out the signature as logo for quite a while now but this is the first time they've officially said look this is what we're doing um but i think what's interesting from a local perspective is ogilvy have already started trying to do these kind of restructures and rearrangements um back in march in sydney they reshuffled their creative arm to merge creative social and content creatives into one team but when that happened the question i had is shouldn't you really be doing that anyway and part of me does feel slightly like this reshuffling is probably something that smaller more agile agencies have already been doing and perhaps because they're such a giant brand it's just taken them a long time to catch up and locally as well we then had ogilvy pr renamed to simply opr with kieran moore who is the ceo wpp AUNZ PR and pa <laughs> which quite frankly has to be a contender for the most acronyms in one job title <laughs> saying same leadership same talent same expertise and a different name why do you think they're wanting to move away from ogilvy it's such an iconic name uh, i knew the name even before i was of this industry of this world OPR to me means nothing. It's a tricky one. And part of me does wonder who made that decision. Is this coming from the top? Would you really want to get rid of that Ogilvy brand that has such strength? And Zoe, I know you're our media reporter, but you did used to report on the creative space when you were but a young junior journo. What do you think? Do you think there are just too many agencies, too many brands and too many sub-brands? There's so, so many and we get a release almost every day about a rebrand or a reshuffle or a restructure or a holding company moving this to this or that to that. Do we have too many? Definitely. I think we massively overcomplicate it. When I was working in creative agencies, obviously you've got holding groups, then you have a next level down. Within that you'll have sub agencies that might do design or video or something. One of the things I really didn't like about that at the time was I felt like, especially in creative agencies, creative is a very broad term. You don't really need to dissect that into video design. Isn't that all under the one umbrella? And does that confuse people? You could argue that maybe, yes, they've got, you know, specialties in that, but I don't, all it does to me is it's not top of mind a brand like Ogilvy would be top of mind to me because it's a big, powerful powerhouse. Anything within that I wouldn't be so familiar with. I'm trying to think of an appropriate line to wrap this up that isn't time will tell, uh, but I certainly think that this isn't the end of shakeups at a at a holding company level, whether it's locally, globally 
or both. So watch this space. And we had a bit of different news this week from Bauer Media, who in recent years have been known for closing titles, restructuring, letting people go, changing their digital strategy, integrating things, separating things, bringing them back together. It's certainly been an overall narrative of decline, whether they wanted to admit that or not. That's certainly what the industry was taking from it. But this week, Bauer Media have gone back on the acquisition trail, uh, acquiring Inside Out, Country Style and Home Life from News Corp. Uh, A Bauer spokesperson did tell me that there would be no redundancies as a result of the acquisition, which was quite frankly a phrase I haven't heard from them for a while. Zoe, why are they buying things when before they've been trying to reduce the number of people, titles and resources? I had a lot of time to think about that this week and – I think the thing to remember with Bauer at the moment is it's been almost a year since uh, Paul Dykesel came in. He was the CEO of Bauer Media in New Zealand. He's now come into Australia. A lot of what he was doing at the start definitely and probably Nick Chan, who was the former CEO, was doing too, was tightening the business. So I think what we've seen in the last couple of years is, okay, what's not working? Let's consolidate that. One of the more interesting things he did earlier I think it was earlier this year actually, was actually bring digital back into the print side of the business, which to most people would sound like quite obvious, but they were actually quite separate. So he's done a lot of things like that, but then he actually appointed Fiorella De Santo, who was actually their director of sales, to a GM of publishing role. And I'm not going to say which parts of the she does because I'm going to get it wrong, but I think it's something like luxury, food. It's got a lot of words. Fashion. It's a lot of different areas, but What I think is really interesting about this acquisition is that she is trying to fill gaps in an offering from both a consumer and commercial perspective. So she's looking at everyone from a a very cheap renter to someone that might like aesthetics or interior design to, you know, luxury. And what she's done by getting these three uh, titles in is being able to fill that out. So if you're a brand that's interested, you've now got access to a full stable. Why she hasn't done that in other sectors, I'm guessing she's seen massive opportunity from a revenue perspective or a commercial perspective in home. That might be the case in other sectors, but this is obviously the first move. What it looks like they're doing is working out their strengths and trying to solidify that. But did they not last year ditch yours, Recipes Plus and Home Plus? They did, which I did ask Fiorella about because obviously Homes Plus does fall within that category. Her argument... Uh, if I remember correctly, was that while it was sort of the budget end of the market, it wasn't quite strong enough from a commercial perspective. So I think it's inside out or it might be home life actually. One of the two definitely fits in a lot better with that. I think they've got real living as well. So there's obviously other areas where that kind of consumer was going to be in other titles. So that was sort of the logic behind that. But yeah, definitely raised a lot of questions when they were axing a, a title that did sit within that sort of category. And my question is from News Corp's perspective, why did they want to get rid of these brands? And part of me wonders, considering Bauer is a direct rival of theirs, were they were these the publications that they felt like they wanted to get rid of because perhaps they were not performing as well as the others? I think it's definitely the latter. I think, you know, News Corp's got some really strong magazine brands, especially in food. They've got delicious taste They also have luxury, so GQ and Vogue. They've got, they're very, very strong in that space. From my perspective, if there were magazines to go, it was probably these ones and it could definitely fill out 
the offering that Bauer definitely desired, but it seems like everyone's looking to play in a certain space now and have different offerings. And Fiorella comes from News Corp. She's she's actually got um, more than 20 years experience in in that building. She knows what those brands are like. She probably saw it well before she joined Bauer. So it was only a matter of time. It's a bit like uh, holding companies in that are there just too many of these magazines? Magazine readership is declining. There's just no question about it. If we're talking about physical print magazines, it, it's declining. There's so many brands now in this space. I know that Bauer is saying we're still going to print it, we're not going to cut anything, but there's less people accessing this and so many titles. Zoe, you already mentioned Real Living. Bauer mentioned in their release a number of other titles that they already have in this space, including Bell, I think, and a number of others. And I just thought that is a lot when there's not as many people paying for this printed product anymore and engaging with it. It feels like they really do need to focus on that digital offering, build up the social media. And these type of publications are ones that could potentially do well on social media. They've got the Pinterest boards going on, you know, that that the audience is there, but I think the audience is online. And if they don't kind of realize that and build that very strongly along with that print offering, I think they might have a few issues. There's one more thing I'd probably add to that, and that's totally right. But I think the appeal of that was the brand itself. And I think what I've noticed in covering the publishing space is the brands or the print mags that will succeed potentially are the ones that have a very strong brand identity. And that's not talking about print or digital. That's talking about what does Women's Weekly mean to me? What does Women's Day mean to me? What does New Idea mean to me? It's deciding how much of a strong presence they have and they can change mediums. We can always change mediums, but if there's not a strong brand identity, it's kind of redundant. And in inside out country style, country style, I, I can remember reading in almost every place that I've been to. When you've got a brand like that, maybe the print does scale back eventually, but if you've got something that is so powerful, you can easily adapt it to different mediums and, and follow the audience. Country Style is definitely a magazine that's been in almost every holiday rental house yeah. I've been in up and down the Australian East Coast. So I think you're onto something there. Look, speaking of publishing, Zoe, you've been knee deep, probably neck deep in Nielsen metrics and Nielsen dramas this week. I think you know more about Nielsen than anyone I know. Sometimes I think you know more about Nielsen than Nielsen does. <laughs> so I'm not even going to bother to intro this. I'm just going to let you you speak. What have you been doing with Nielsen this week? Okay, well, I think before I go into what I've been doing this week, for those of you who don't know what Nielsen does and who they are, Nielsen is a measurement company for publishers specifically. It measures audience. It also looks at things like changing behaviors with consumers. Uh, it looks at total audience. It looks at time spent. It looks at a, a variety of different factors that provide insight to brands and agencies about a particular publishing brand. Nielsen's also the industry measurement standard. So it is the uh, recognized and IAB certified, so Interactive Advertising Bureau certified measurement solution. And what they've had in market for a number of years, a form or a measurement solution called Digital Ratings Monthly. What Digital Ratings Monthly provided was a top line view of total audience. Uh, when Umbrella got it, we also looked at time spent on site, um, sessions per person. What they recently introduced last year was a metric called digital content ratings. What digital content ratings does is it's able to measure off-platform measurements, so things like Facebook, uh, Google, accelerated mobile pages, a um, number of things like that. So DCR also offers a more granular 
sort of audience view. They've been distributing that weekly to us at Mumbrella through a newsletter. They're now about to introduce a monthly sort of overlaying metric that they can distribute widely. But basically the DCR metric is a build off the DRM metric. So what's been happening in the publishing space over the last few months is that a number of major and small to medium publishers have had issues with both the DRM methodology and the DCR methodology. The DCR methodology not being quite there yet, the DRM methodology being outdated. There's been a number of issues, probably most notable was when Fairfax Media decided to withdraw from the DCR metric. So uh, DCR uses a thing called uh, SDK tagging and I'm going to forget what the acronym, what that specifically stands for, but basically what that means. We can forgive you. (laughs) Yes, it's an acronym-heavy episode. Yeah, acronym-heavy episode. In the past few minutes, you've almost said more than Kieran Moore's job title. So, (laughs) Exactly. So SDK, um, what that does is a publisher will attach uh, a tag to uh, their website, their other platforms, and they're basically that Nielsen's able to track that. That's basically how it works. That's a very simplified version of how it works. What if I'm not happy with Nielsen? Do I even have an alternative? If I'm a publisher, I think that the content rating isn't up to scratch, the monthly one's out of date. What can I do? Well, it's really difficult because Comscore, which was an alternative, has left the market. There are a number of redundancies last year and they've left. The other issue is that IAB is, you know, the industry body and IAB has certified Nielsen. Now, I believe Nielsen's contract might be up next year or the year after, but as far as I understand it, the IAB and Nielsen have quite a robust relationship. So it's really difficult. Um, in Fairfax's case, they're using their own third-party data. The problem that's arisen, and this is what I learned this week with when talking to media buyers about this, is that if you if you do pull, if you do pull out, if you do cancel your contract with Nielsen, agencies are very wary. Ultimately, Nielsen is incredibly important as a metric. It's one that they compare to a number of different data sets, but even despite how angry or how frustrated publishers may be, ultimately, it is very, very difficult for them. They're in a very, very, they kind of have their hands tied. So media buyers and planners obviously are the ones that place ads for brands and and tell people where to place those ads and book those ads. So you spoke to a number of media agencies about Nielsen this week. What do they think? My understanding is they think it's flawed but necessary. Is that right? Yeah. The argument for the most part is there's gaps in in the methodology, particularly the DCR methodology. It's just not quite there yet, which is to be expected given how quickly we've advanced and how quickly digital publishers have advanced and where their audiences are. But they've said that it's necessary. Ultimately, it is industry standard. Whether or not they actually agree with it is a separate thing, but the fact of the matter is while all the publishers are in there and while IAB is certifying that measurement solution, it is what it is and, you know, they have to compare that and use a number of sets. They have emphasised that they are using a number of different sets and I think in one instance if um, one of the heads of digital, um, Amelia Elston from Amplify, was saying that, you know, if it – if it did get to the point where the numbers were so there was such a large disparity in numbers between that and other data sets, they would look at a bigger figure and they would reassess. But ultimately, Nielsen is one of the most recognized industry standards, uh, industry metrics, and it makes it very difficult for publishers that don't feel that their audiences are being reflected by Nielsen. 
So what about smaller publishers? Because someone like Fairfax has a lot of weight and money to throw around and they can perhaps put some political pressure on the likes of the IAB and, and Nielsen in turn. What if I'm a, a small publisher who's not happy with what I'm getting? Am I just going to have to suck it up? Oh, gosh. You're going to have to suck it up. Look, at the moment, they're all in discussions. I'm, I'm well aware that they're in discussions and trying to resolve the issues they have. Ultimately, they don't want to pull, but ultimately, they're also paying a, a sizable amount of money, even though it's significantly less than the likes of, you know, a news or a Fairfax or a seven or a nine. It's still a lot of money to them. And if their audiences aren't being reflected, well, what are they paying for, essentially? And with the small publishers, am I right in thinking that the panel based data doesn't reflect them accurately at all? Because if the people on that panel don't happen to read those websites, then they basically show up as nothing. Yeah, exactly. So the DRM methodology is a combination of panel-based data with the tagging that is solely in DCR. The argument is that if you're a small publisher, uh, the tagging doesn't really work in that instance. And when you're on a panel, if you're a niche publisher, if you're a, oh God, I don't know, if you're targeting, say, the over 60s or, you know, between if you're like a punky or a pez, if you're targeting specific niche bits, you're hoping that the panel is going to be, you know, has some young people in there. If they don't, they're probably not going to know it. So for the people that are actually in niche segments, it actually becomes really challenging. And in the last two months, Nielsen won't actually give us those numbers. So we've been having, been able to have access to the smaller publishers' DRM numbers. They're not now giving that. Now they're saying that they need to work out how to accurately measure audiences. My understanding is that the publishers are so frustrated that their audiences are not being communicated that Nielsen's actually had to pull back. Well, now we're through the wonders of technology and podcasting, going to throw to Tim on the phone with Sean McAuliffe. But thank you, Zoe, and thank you, Josie, for joining us today. Thank, thank you. you. Joining us now on the Mumbrella cast is one of TV's funniest presenters, Sean McAuliffe, currently hosting Talking About Your Generation, newly rebooted on Nine. Now, Sean, Talking About Your Generation was a huge hit when it came on air in 2009. What do you think was was it about it that that worked so well? Uh, oh, gosh. Um, well... I must admit, when it first, when it on the eve of its broadcast, I was thinking, well, this could, this this will either be um, acceptable or it could easily pass unnoticed. You know, I really didn't. Well, we had fun making it, but um, um, but I guess my job was really just to jolly it along. Uh, And the, uh, I guess the, the idea for it isn't existed before I was involved. And I think the reason that I did it was because my children at that point were quite young and hadn't seen me in anything. And uh, the uh, the opportunity for them to actually see me on TV uh, at a time when they were awake. So I was on it. I was at SBS at ten o'clock or something doing a news uh, satire sort of thing, which of course they just wouldn't be interested in no matter what time it was on, let alone ten o'clock. So it was it was a calculated attempt to win over my children, and I guess inherent in that was an understanding that uh, you know there are lots of people in my position, and you know there weren't so many things you could watch as a family, and we did kind of enjoy uh, playing 
board games at that point together, and this was the closest thing to a television board game that I, I could think of, or at least it reminded me of that. And I thought there might be a chance that people would react to it in the same way, and fortunately, I think they did. So I think if that's a very long-winded way of answering your question, I think it probably worked because it was, at that point, still something that, well, one of the few things I think that families could actually sit down and uh, appreciate on a couple of levels, uh, which brought them together. And that's always the challenge, I think, with, with any television show on mainstream commercial you know, on a mainstream commercial network is to try and find something that everybody wants and that's becoming increasingly difficult. Uh, it's not impossible because everyone's watching things that aren't television now. And then, of course, I, su- I, I suppose you also have that thing as well of will lightning strike twice when you're asked to kind of go and do it again. Um, how much persuading did you need to kind of host it for the revival as well? Well, I... Uh, not much, really. I mean, I've been I've been around long enough to know that there are no sure things, and there's no real science to it. And just because some things associated with a program are measurable, that doesn't necessarily mean anything to me as a a person who pr- approaches these things creatively. And I guess when my job is simply to present someone else's work, as is the case here, it first and foremost just has to be fun for me to do to to actually generate any sort of interest at all. So a lot of the fun of those four series that we did uh, was was getting to know each other and also me getting to know what it was to present a television show because I had never done it. And I still don't really regard myself as a television presenter. I, don't, you know, I, could, I could no more present a television program in the way that is expected than I could fly to the moon. I just... <laughs> I just perversely can't do it. So I can I can play the role of somebody being a presenter and I've often done that in comedy. And that's kind of what I'm doing. I've got a foot in the comedy camp and a foot in the presenting camp. I suppose I'm I don't know I kind of I don't know what the hell I'm doing, quite frankly. I don't know what I'm doing or, or what it is or what the value of it is. It just seems to be a way <laughs> a way for me to cope with it. I think that was the fun of the first series was coping with the fact I had to present a pretty mainstream television show and then get to know the people on it. Now this time around it's a bit different because I kind of know what I'm doing now even though it's not straight presenting but I kind of know how to do a show now I could throw to the ads without thinking about it and I can do all those things without it being a a problem comic or otherwise and uh, and because I know the cast I know the captains quite well it's a different sort of play uh, it's it's far more comfortable if I start something with Robin for example if I start something with Robin she kind of knows where I'm going with it and I kind of know what she might do with it and uh, ditto for Andy Andy's been around long enough and you know there's a, there's a bit of discovery with uh, with uh, Lawrence because I don't we don't really know each other so we're kind of finding our way um, but there's pleasure in that that's quite different from the pleasure that I got working with Charlie, who I, I basically kind of knew he he would catch me if I was falling, or I would catch him if if, if he was falling. You know, we can sort of we can sort of do that, but we didn't we didn't really know exactly what we were going to do. Ditto Josh and ditto Amanda, and that was that's a different sort of more dangerous fun, I guess. And you um you've sort of alluded to it already the kind of the the the, the, the creative process of you know something of your own versus you know sort of wider production team how does the process sort of differ between 
um, talking about new generation and mad as hell, for instance, you know, from the, from the outside, it sort of feels like you get the opportunity to relax in and be slightly looser in the panel format versus it feels like every line and every thought is crafted in mad as hell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, they're, um, they're very different shows to put together. Mad as hell is because it is topical and it is in turnaround. And we have a blank sheet of paper on the Thursday and we record on the Tuesday. Uh, it is what it is because of the fact it's made in those few days. And yes, you're right. Everything is written. Uh, I, I do, I have over the years allowed myself a little bit of space to, and even during the interview, the, the cold interviews we do as well, there's a little bit of, tiny little bit of space to at least enjoy the other person's performance or if I'm just doing a to-camera piece, I can't, sometimes will react to the audience and add a couple of lines here and there or maybe maybe even put in a line that I'd cut out. You know, my memory's reasonably good with the material, but it's, it's more of a... Um, it's more calculated, I suppose, and it has to be, you know, because I'm speaking at probably maybe twice as fast as a normal person would if they were reading the news. You know, it's a, it's it's kind of um, it's got a lot of it's very dense, and and we need to I need to be able to communicate that in a way that's palatable and uh, processable by the audience. So I think I think it's quite a fast show, uh, and deliberately so. Um, whereas whereas talking about your generation has a whole lot of I mean it has writers, but the writers really, apart from just doing the questions, uh, create um, spaces within which we can find humour rather than comedy, which is a little more a little more constructive. The, the fun and the humour of something is found in the in the in the game that is created. So, unlike some shows, I suppose we don't tell the captains or or the contestants any of the questions. So there's absolutely no preparation as far as they're concerned. There's preparation as far as I'm concerned because I've, I've got to run the thing and I have to do the tech rehearsals and everything. So I know what I'm kind of know what I'm doing. But there's a lot of space where it's just empty brackets essentially, and we we trust. Uh, the show to be able to find um, the interplay that uh, w- will come up naturally. So it's kind of more marshalling a uh, a bunch of uncertainties with talking about your generation, whereas as mad as hell is um, you kind of know going into it exactly what you're going to do. And also as a performer, uh, and because I'm involved in all aspects of the production on Matters Hell, I know I'm going to be there in the edit. So I, I can I can edit around my deficiencies. I can, I can do that in the writing as well. I, I, I'm sort of across all uh, parts of that process, so I shepherd the whole thing through. Whereas on Generation, I'm just presenting. I mean, I do come in and do a pass over the scripts, so I kind of know, you know, there might be three or four things I might pursue in a little conversation I'll have with one of the one of the guests. But generally, uh, it's just to give it my voice. You know, if I'm doing an opening monologue, it's like maybe 10 lines or something, that's about it. So I'll, I'll sort of put in a couple of my jokes and um, throw out somebody else's and maybe throw out mine and keep theirs. And then on the run, when we're performing, I make those editorial decisions in my head as we go. Sometimes the guests will come up with something in the moment that's quite funny and there's no need then for me to do something that I'd already prepared if, if nothing had happened. You know, So there's that sort of, uh, that sort of 
chess game going on all the time. And I'm a little better at it now than I was when we first started. When we first started in the original version of the show, I tended to do everything. I just presented everything I, I had and then let the uh, poor old editor have to cut it down so that it fitted in, you know, 45 commercial minutes. <laughs> but now, now I kind of know how to do it. So I uh, hopefully made that job a bit easier for him. And for Matt as hell, I, I presume the other thing must just be the sheer pressure because I'm sure to consistently hit the high standard it does week in, week out, there must be plenty of times where that doesn't come as easy as it looks. Well, there's, you know, we write, I sometimes look at the pile of scripts that sits in my office at the end of the season, and it's quite a tall pile. There's a pile of no, and there's a pile of yes that went into the system. And they're about the same. So we throw away 50% of what we write before we even consider it whether or not it can be produced. Of the material that gets the yes, um, probably on a week-to-week basis, probably about maybe... 60% of that gets shot, and then of that 60%, um, half of that would go to air, and even that half would be tightened. Uh, so we'd lose lines here and there. We might lose an ending, and we might put in a, you know, we might cut it in half or whatever whatever it is. So the mad as hell is 28 minutes tops. Sometimes maybe it'd blow out to 29 minutes, and we would shoot probably over an hour, and like I say, there's probably another hour's worth, uh, maybe a little over an hour that, per week that didn't get, <laughs> that didn't didn't make it, you know, through the gate. So the strength, I think, of any show, not just Mad as Hell, but I think the strength of any of those sorts of shows is what you throw away. If you don't have a choice, then you kind of just got what you've got. Now, on talking about your generation. Uh, at the moment, we're losing. We lose a game, an episode, because. The interplay is considered, you know, fun and entertaining and worthwhile. So we, we prefer that rather than rather than a game. So we used to have two games in the second segment. We now only have one, but we actually recorded two. So there's a whole lot of mo- a whole lot of material that actually hits the hits the dirt, and there's a whole lot of you know ad libbing and mucking around that hits the dirt. And again, I guess we'd shoot two hours for each hour. And with Generation, um, obviously it's ended up on nine this time rather than ten. What's, from your perspective, what's the story behind the change of networks? Uh, well, well, I guess originally I thought it might be fun just to do a reunion show on ten, you know, just to have the same cast back. Uh, that was the that was the genesis of what, how it's ended up on nine, was that I, I thought at the end of, I think I've done Mad as Hell for maybe Seven seasons, and I thought, oh, it might be nice to, because I'd seen Charlie, and just Charlie had started the weekly, and he was around the ABC quite a bit, and, you know, sort of, I'd see him in the corridors, and uh, you know, we still talk occasionally. We used to have lunch before he did the weekly, so sort of, um, we'd have he'd have a session with me where he'd sort of just pick my brain about it, and I could tell that's where he was going to go anyway, because he's got a natural affinity for that sort of material. You could see that on the project. So we, we, you know, we we remained in contact. Josh occasionally I'd email and talk to him, but he was quite busy with his sitcom. But again, that was on the ABC. Amanda I'd speak to occasionally, um, usually when she was in radio, but she's because she's in Sydney. It was it was sort of difficult to bump into her. And I thought it'd be fun just to do a limited series, you know, as a sort of reunion series. 
And everyone was keen on doing that, but unfortunately, 10 couldn't accommodate it uh, just in the schedule. I guess they had their stuff planned, and when we were all invi- when we were all going to be all available, wasn't convenient for them. So it kind of went away, uh, I thought. And um, nine then were interested, but because Amanda's tied to 10, they weren't going to be able to have Amanda. So the general view then, as I said before, was that, oh, they recast the whole thing and just do the show with a whole bunch of different people. So that's probably what would have happened with a different host had I not kind of just enjoyed myself, I suppose. It would have been, it would have been a different host. They would have got someone else to do it. So I prepared uh, for this chat and speaking of 10 in, in what might be the worst possible way by going to YouTube and reminding myself of the time that you appeared on 10's breakfast show when Paul Henry was hosting, uh, which, 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 which I think uh, made me a bit nervous. You'd be impossible to control as a guest, which is clearly an unfair impression. But it's also one of my favourite moments, I think, of television of the last decade. Because if you could, if you could sit there, your microphone is on the floor now. <laughs> can can I please have, be the voice of reason here? What and we can we discuss some technology yes. with you maniacs? Can you remember, like, ahead of time, did you know you were going to do that or did you just go with the moment when it was kind of live? But it was just such a a wonderful kind of poking fun at the artificiality of breakfast television. Well, look, look, it ended up being that. I I was supposed to go on there to – it might have been to advertise the fourth season, the last – the final season of Talking About Your Generation, oddly enough. So I, I'd done the rounds and I'd done a lot of these sorts of things. And I turned up on shows, you know, I'd done Rove's show and I'd done Adam Hill's show where I, where I kind of misbehaved and it was all done with approval. Like I said, look, you know, do you want to have a bit of fun with this? And they go, yeah, sure, Rove was absolutely fine with it. You know, Adam, Adam was fine with it, you know, and gently, but, you know, there was a, there was an element of, of, of playful subversion, I suppose, in that. And, and often that comes from my slight discomfort for having to do it, I suppose, because I have to do it. But also, it's kind of, kind of expected to a certain extent. Anyway, so I, I didn't know anybody on the, on this Paul Henry thing at all. But I said to the publicist, and they said, "Oh, we want you to do this." Um, uh, it's called Gen Wise, and I guess they, were, they thought that I'd be good for it because you know it was they had a Gen Y kid on there talking about social media or something and I was supposed to take the opposing view which is a, you know I thought it's a pretty lame idea for a segment now it's generation y versus generation y it's clever it's very clever okay but I'll, I'll go with it then I found out that they had somebody else slated in to do it the previous week and just hadn't done it so it was a bit of a plug in for it and I said, look, do you mind if I have a bit of fun with it? There's not much. It's a bit of a straitjacket. Can I have a bit of fun with it? The pub- publicist said, sure, sure. No, they love a bit of fun. And the producer of that particular show said, yes, no, they enjoy fun. They enjoy fun. Okay, great. I'll have some fun. But I think we had different definitions of what fun was because I could tell as we were doing it, I could feel the stage, whoever the first assistant director was, I could feel the crew sort of shrink back from it. Hey, sit down. Absolutely. Sit down. Okay. Isn't this where I started? Technology. So I was obviously being a bit too loud or big. Paul Henry seemed okay with it, but everybody else went a bit quiet. And I thought, oh, man, there's no way I can come, but I can't really turn back now. I'm waist deep in blood. I've just got to, I've just got to continue with it. So I perversely just got bigger and, and misbehaved even more, thinking... <laughs> I'll just double down or triple down on it. Are you afra- do you fear death? I don't know. I don't know. What do you mean I fear death? Like, how old do I look, Catherine? 
I mean, we all we all fear we all fear the metaphorical death of working in television. And by the end of it, and by the end of it, I mean, I thought it was funny, and I don't think anybody else did. When I came off, uh, the crew were very quiet. I think the crew were amused, but they were sort of having to stifle their response to it. No one from the production came over to me at all. Nobody on the on the set said thank you or we'll see you later or that was okay or whatever. No one looked up from their notes and I thought, oh man, I just completely misread this room entirely. I thought they were digging it, but they just weren't at all. So, uh, and I never heard anything about it at all from Channel 10. No one said anything. The publicist looked ashen when I came off. So it was an example of me completely misreading uh, what was expected of me and uh, and <laughs> anyway, the show's gone away now, so that's fine. Does it still exist on YouTube, does it? Is, it's is still, it still around? Very- it's still there in very low resolution on YouTube, I'm, I'm glad to say. Now, Sean, just finally, um, you, you've done TV, you've done radio, you've done film, you've written, you write. You, you get to see our media up close. Um, what state do you actually think, and I know this is a big question, but what state do you actually think the Australian media is in? Are you optimistic? Uh, well, if I can, I'll step away from my own selfish needs uh, of continued employment. Um, I, I think there's so much available now to to watch. I think that probably radio, in a funny sort of way, is the most. Even though it's the, probably the oldest platform, it's the most spry in that it's able to adapt probably more to the portability that's required that people expect of media now uh, in the form of podcasts or in the form of radio programs that they're cut up into uh, what effectively are podcasts, I suppose. And the fact that everything is, you know, more or less everything, whether it's good or bad, has been digitised, and this is not only radio but also television and film as well. Everything, everything sits next to each other on the shelf. So one of the things we learned from in this current incarnation of generation was that Gen Z seemed to know just as much about the baby boomer uh, experience as the baby boomers supposedly remember as well, having experienced it, because everything is next to each other on the shelf. It's accessible. If you want to see anything at all in the history of programming, you can probably get it without spending too much time. You can either find a low-res version of it on YouTube or you can find a, a copy of it or you can download it or you can a- access it in any way you want. So that's great for the um, for the consumer. Uh, what, it, what, it's, what it's done is just increased exponentially the amount of competition. So I don't know about you, but I know that I, uh, at around about 8.30 at night, won't watch free-to-air television. I'll probably, with my wife, stream something that uh, I missed the first time round. So, you know, and everything's available. Um, it's a sort of a box set mentality. So you can, <laughs> as we did, sit down and watch West Wing, which I'd never seen. And that's, how old's that? 20 years old? Yeah, it still stands the test of time, doesn't it? It's, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. And, and it's better than anything else you, you find at the moment on television. And the stuff that is coming out that is good now, uh, is, uh, I'll just, I'll put that in the queue and get to it when I can. And the other thing is, the other thing that's opened up is, um, and this might be because Netflix, I think, and maybe 
or whatever the equivalent is of Stan overseas, uh, let's just go with Netflix. There's there's these local content requirements for Netflix, so you're going to need great series that come out of Germany or in Norway or Denmark, you know, um, things that are specifically being made for streaming services that are just really, really interesting to look at because they've got a kind of Nord- that Nordic, cold Nordic sensibility or, or you're getting, Euro- you know, the German show, they're called Dark, I think I just recently sat through that. Um, it's just, it's just glorious and there's so much of it. Now what that does is, it's like I say, it's good for the viewer, but it makes it, makes it very, very difficult to try and make anything, particularly a narrative uh, show uh, in Australia um, that can stack up. You know, the other thing is, of course, you've got, you turn on Netflix and you've got six series of something sitting there waiting to be watched, you know, um, whereas we still, you know, you'd be lucky to get eight episodes of anything in, in Australia uh, running and then you've got, you know, you maybe wait 18 months for your funding to come through and you might do another eight. It's going to take forever to build up the simply the amount of quantity that, um it's going to make uh, it worthwhile to put on a streaming service. I guess it'll be a while before the ex-Prime Minister will catch up with the West Wing for the number of uh, <laughs> uh, episodes, I guess. Yes, there's a number of, there's a number of uh, rivers to cross in <laughs> before it approaches uh, being worthwhile sitting next to each other in the shelf. But, um, yeah, I think, I think that's the challenge. Uh, that's the challenge at the moment. And uh, as long as we have a... You know, a government or an arts minister who, um, you know, gets behind the idea of having um, representation of, you know, our stories and understands that it does actually cost money for the production values to compete and make these things worthwhile. And it's not just production values, it's also writing and it's also having the luxury uh, to be able to have a bit of time to make these shows. I mean, often the... In my own personal experience with trying to make anything approaching a narrative drama is is that uh, you've got to make, if you're doing eight episodes, you've got to make it in seven weeks, you know, whereas uh, if you're anywhere else in the world, you would probably have at the very least eight weeks to make eight episodes, probably 16 weeks to make eight episodes. And like I say, it's always the case. The quality comes because you've thrown away stuff that hasn't worked. Not everything works. That's what. That's why... Television, good television or good radio um, is, is worth listening to because you're capturing some moments that you know is worthwhile. But if you if you don't allow yourself the opportunity to make a mistake or to go down a road that doesn't pay off, um, uh, you won't take any risks. And if you don't take any risks because you've got the money, then you end up being very bland. And I'm afraid that's just not going to cut it. Competitively, people will look at that and they see how safe it is. They can feel how safe it is as a as a viewer. They go, that car's too shiny, or that performance is too pat, or those people are just sitting at the, the kitchen table talking for ten minutes when you know you could have seven more setups if you had a bit more money. You know what I mean? To make it look more cinematic, television can't afford to look like television anymore. It's it's just dull. Sean, speaking of time, I'm very grateful for the amount of time that you've found for us uh, during uh, what must be a very busy week. So uh, thank you very much for your, for your, your generosity in talking. Thank you for joining us on the Mumbrella cast this week. If everything goes to plan, we'll be coming to you from Mumbrella 360 next episode. 
So tune in to see if we succeed at remote roaming podcasting in the midst of six streams of content, almost 2,500 attendees and 130 speakers. In the meantime, for the benefit of future listeners, I'd like it on the record that I, for one, welcome our new robot overlords and I'll speak to you next time. 